Well, good morning, everybody. Um, as I was uh, preparing for today and thinking about uh, what we were going to talk about, uh, specifically that we were going to be looking at um, some words of Jesus and, and how some people um, didn't cr- respond correctly to them, how they were misunderstood. Uh, a cute story came to my mind of a, of a friend of mine who, uh, when he got married uh, early on in their marriage, they had set the uh, um, kind of roles and responsibilities that uh, she would uh, come up with the list to go get the groceries, and then he would be the one who would go to the store and buy all the groceries. Um, and so the first week that they had this in practice, uh, he goes to the store and he gets everything but one item. Uh, he forgets to tell his wife that he forgot that one item or didn't get that one item. Uh, and when he, com- when he comes home, she doesn't necessarily notice it uh, until later on in that week when she realizes, oh, that's not in the fridge. Oh, he must not have gotten that one. So she doesn't worry about confronting him or asking him about it. Instead, she just leaves it on the list for him the next week. And, uh, and so he goes back to the store that next week, buys everything on there, uh, comes home, and again, is missing just one thing. Um, she notices this time, doesn't know whether to say something or not, and so she ends up choosing not to say something. Uh, and this pattern goes on. Actually, for over a month, it goes on. And then eventually, she still, every week, has that item on there. Uh, she, he comes home, and she finds that, that that item is missing again. And so she goes to him and asks, and it's like, okay, honey, I need to ask you, um, why is it every week I write on here for you to buy white grapes? Why do you never come home with white grapes? In which his reply was, sorry, honey, actually, I mean, every week I've gone to the store and I've seen purple grapes and I've seen green grapes, but I haven't seen white grapes in the store. Now, some of y'all are just now putting it together, as I did, even hearing that story, that intuitively I was like, oh yeah, they are different colors, in fact. Uh, but this, this cute, you know, again, um, early marriage kind of uh, miscommunication uh, is fine and can be a fun story, uh, but unfortunately, we're going to see some people who misunderstand the words of Jesus, uh, and for their case, it does not turn just into a simple, uh, cute story that they can tell later in life. For theirs, the tragedy is much greater. Um, We're going to be continuing in the book of John, so if you have your Bibles, uh, you can open them up or turn them on and navigate over to chapter 7. I want to mention that if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you can reach down into the uh, rack in front of you and hopefully grab one of these. Um, And uh, and I do want to mention that if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can call your very own. Uh, Please take that one as our gift. We know uh, that we will be blessed for you having it, and you will be blessed as you spend time uh, reading it. Now, again, we're going to be continuing John 7, so to remind ourselves of some of the things we've already talked about, uh, John 7 is broken up into three sections, um, chronological sections all revolving around the Jewish Feast of the Booths. And the Jewish Feast of the Booths, in the three parts, we have uh, the before the feast, we have during the feast, and we have at the last days or after the feast. Uh, and with each one of those sections that John divides this chapter up, uh, we, get th- we were reminded of three words that could summarize them. Uh, the first section could be described as disbelief. The second s- section could be described as debate. And the last section, where we will be today, we will see division. And so today we'll be in this division section. And we're going to find division actually not just coming from one group of people, but from two. We're going to have a double division, if you will. Um, and what we, to, in order for us to 
to rightly understand that division, um, we actually have to do a little bit more backtracking. Um, and we had to consider uh, how we ended, how Chris ended our time together last week with the passage that precedes this morning's passage. Um, because we're going to get to a great hinge verse in our, in our reading this morning. Everything around, revolves around this one truth that is proclaimed. And for us to understand rightly what is built up to that truth, we have to go back and understand uh, the words that Jesus said that has led us to this division. So look back now, we're going to be in John chapter 7. I'm going to start reading in verse 37. And they're going to be, the words are going to be on the screen. And when we get to the bolded, underlined part, um, specifically this time, Jesus' words, I want us all to read them uh, together. So John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his hearts will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Uh, for at, as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Again, if we remember back to the teachings we've had leading up to today's conversation, we remember that during the entire time of the Feast of the Booze, every morning there was a certain ritual um, that, that went on where the priests would go and they would grab a pitcher and they would travel from the temple all the way down to the spring that fed the Pool of Siloam. And they would go and they would dip that pitcher into that water. Whole times, masses and masses of crowds of Jewish people would be there celebrating, and they would gather at this spring, and they themselves would drink of the water, uh, and they would be chanting and reciting Isaiah 12, 3, that says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This entire thing was focused in on them remembering their salvation and the promise of salvation. And they'd march back to the temple. Um, they'd be wa waving a luav and carrying an etrog. And uh, uh, if you don't know, as I didn't, had to do some research, a luav is a, um, a branches of myrtle and of willow that are wrapped in a palm leaf. And an etrog is simply this Israeli citrus fruit. Um, good news, if you're preparing for the Feast of the Booze next year, uh, you can find your very own luav and etrog kit on Amazon. Unfortunately, now, this, this season of year, since last, uh, it was last month that this feast went on, uh, I did not get to buy it. They're currently unavailable, so I made my own. And so this is my uh, luav. It's got uh, crepe myrtle. I'm sure that's equivalent. Um, it's got some willow branches all wrapped in a palm branch. Uh, and so they would be waving this and holding up a fruit. You know, you're thinking, well, why? Why would they be doing this? What is the significance with this passage? Um, Leon Morris, he's a uh, New Testament scholar. Uh, he wrote in his commentary this summary that I thought was, uh, was concise enough. I put it on the screen for you. He says, the twigs represents the stages of the wilderness journey, marked by the different, times of uh, different kinds of vegetation. And the citrus fruit symbolized the fruit of the promised land. Essentially this, what they were doing, even with their waving, was looking back at their journey onto the deliverance of their people into the promised land. And they were marking how they eventually got there. Uh, and they were doing this all in remembrance, again, remember what they were doing, what verse they were reading or chanting um, when they were dipping out the water. They were remembering their salvation. They were remembering being brought to the promised land. 
Then they would all proceed, this whole procession would go back to the temple, and in the courtyards they would sing uh, the, Hallel song, the Hallel Psalms, uh, which are the praise psalms of uh, Psalm 113 to 118. Uh, they would have this joyous, praising occasion, remembering uh, their salvation. And uh, the, the priest would take the water, and he would pour it out into a basin. Some of that would go down uh, to the bottom of the altar, and some of it would be used in some other rituals. Um, and they would do this every morning on each one of the day of the festivals until they get to the seventh day. And on the seventh day, they would actually do it seven times. And so again, a number of importance to the Jewish signifying completion, uh, but this would be how joyous of an experience it was to experience this not just once a day, but seven times. This was a massive celebration throughout the day. The Mishnah, which was uh, old writings on Jewish writings on the Old Testament, actually speaks of this and says about this joy, he that never seen the joy of the water drawing never, has never in his life seen joy. That's how much emphasis was placed on them and their joyous celebration of the salvation that was delivered to them when they entered the promised land. Now it's possible and on this seventh day when all these people are proceeding by that this is when Jesus gets up and speaks. Now, this is when he gets up and cries out during this and makes the great proclamation. Um, it gets rather technical, but I actually agree with Chris that he, as he taught last week, that it's, it's more likely that this was happening on the eighth day, um, actually the day after uh, this celebration, because the day after the Feast of the, of the Booths was the day of convocation. Um, it's, it was kind of the best way to put it. It was like there was so much joy going on during the feast, they needed another day just to celebrate how much joy was going on. So they tacked this other day on. This is the great day. This is the day that I think Jesus is standing up on. Uh, it's kind of like this guy, right? The, you, got the, you got the guy that you know, like the game isn't gonna be a party enough. That guy, he's gonna need a post-party, right? He's gonna need a post-game party afterwards to continue celebrating. This is what the day of convocation was. It was so joyous. Uh, they, were, they were so wrapped up in this great thing that they were celebrating in their salvation. They needed to celebrate the completion of that the next day. Now, interestingly, on this, on this other day, the day of convocation, no water is, is drawn from the pool. Um, everything was completed with the seventh day, the seven times. And so there's no need to go back to the pool again. Um, yet at this moment, during this time, I think this is when Jesus comes up and makes this statement, this attention-grabbing statement about those who are thirsty and about coming to him to uh, drink. There's more urgency that we find even in this passage because as we've read, uh, at this moment, Jesus actually stands he stands up in front of everybody. Um, that may not seem odd to us, but to that day, rabbis taught from a seated position. That was more respectable to be sitting. Jesus doesn't conform to the normal uh, rabbi rabbinical tradition by seating and instead takes a position perhaps less respectable, um, but to communicate more of the urgency that's there, and he stands up. Not only does he stand up, he actually cries out as the scripture has said to us, he cries out. The Greek word here is krazo, which um, it means to cry out loudly with an urgent scream and shouts that express deep emotion. This is an interesting word, krazo, that has actually is a onomatopoeia. It's a word that is based on uh, the sound that it's meaning to um, mimic or define. Uh, and the, 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 it is derived specifically from the raven's piercing cry. And that's what it's coming from. Here's, here's a video of a raven. See if you can hear Crazo. 
Jesus is standing up and he is crying out because there's immense urgency placed on his words. We're not supposed to miss this. This is how John frames this. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. On a day where there's no water being gathered from the spring, Jesus gets up and says, come to me. I am the source of the water. Drink from me. He, in this moment, is not only proclaiming himself to be the source of the water, he's actually uh, proclaiming himself to be then the completion of the Feast of the Booths. In essence, what he's saying is what you thought you accomplished and finished seven times yesterday, you still stand today in need of salvation. And you know what? Instead of looking back at our history and seeing this is how God has delivered us into the promised land and looking forward to one day him doing it again, Jesus is standing up and saying that day is today. I'm that person. I am the source of the water. Salvation can be found in me. Remember everything that we've talked about from the water to the branches to the citrus fruit, uh, the scriptures and the songs of, of Thanksgiving. Everything was pointing at salvation. And now Jesus gets up after this ritual has been completed during this festival and says, no, 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 I am the one to fulfill this. I am the one to bring the messianic blessing. In fact, here he is claiming, I am the Messiah. Jesus is saying salvation comes from him. His urgent message is, you long for salvation, you're thirsty. Well, I am the Messiah, so come to me and drink. As if this phrase alone isn't crazy enough, Jesus continues in verse 38 and says, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, there's some debate among scholars about who is the his here, whose heart is it talking about. Some people point that to Jesus, other people point that to the believer. Now, it may seem in the ESV that we're reading right now, you'd think, well, naturally, it must be the believer, whoever believes in me, as Scripture said, out of his. So it's a reverence back to him. But in Greek, we don't have punctuation marks, and so it's left up to a lot of the context. And so some scholars actually, um, uh, some of them think that this, the beginning of the sentence, whoever believes in me, is actually should be on the last sentence. So more literally, it would be read, read something like, um, like this, where it would say, uh, if anyone thirsts, come to me, whoever believes in me, drink. Or if anyone thirsts, come to me, drink, whoever believes in me. As scripture says, out of his heart, meaning Jesus' heart, uh, will flow rivers of living water. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm fine if this is the right interpretation of the scholars, um, you know, to, to always err when you're trying to interpret Scripture on the side of saying, well, it's probably about Jesus. Sunday school answer, Jesus. This one's not a bad one either. Um, but I do think that the ESV and other modern translations who punctuate it the way we're reading it today is actually probably closer to the intended meaning. Um, because what, what happens, what is happening here is a twofold part. Jesus is making a statement about who he is. And then because of who he is, he then now is making a statement about who the believer is. There's an identity giving uh, kind of reference here where Jesus is ca causing something to happen in the state of the believer that John will interpret for us and tell us is actually the Holy Spirit. So if it was crazy enough to think that Jesus has stood up and said, come to me and drink, now he's standing up and saying, if you believe out of your heart, literally in the Greek, from within your belly, all that is inside of you, living waters will flow. This is a 
This is an imagery of, of living waters welling up inside of them. This isn't new to us, this concept of welling up. Because we've read John chapter 4, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Again, John gives us in verse 39 some additional commentary that this is about the Holy Spirit. And we'll run into this specifically about the Holy Spirit again in chapter 14 of John, which in verse 16 says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you and will be in you. So this is Jesus' twofold crazy claim, saying, thirsty, come to me and drink. Believe, and I will have the Holy Spirit welling up, completing inside of you. And it's even crazy enough, as a side note, it's crazy that uh, even for the original audience, Jesus here is, is citing Scripture. He says, as Scripture states. Now, a lot of times when Jesus says this, he makes a direct quote on an Old Testament passage. Here, he's not actually quoting the Old Testament directly. Um, he's actually providing a new teaching, a summary of a lot of related Old Testament passages that he is bringing together and making an interpretation and saying, this is how I am completing this. I am bringing this about that those who believe in me, I will put inside of them a river of living water that will well up inside of them. And so the, how do the people respond? How are the people going to respond to this crazy, radical, new, and beautiful teaching of Jesus? Well, that's what our next section is about, because now we're going to fall into the division. And I've told you we're going to have a key hinge verse here, and so I've bolded and underlined this one, and this one we will read together. Um, but look back down with me at verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. And the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Hmm. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone before gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So here we run into our division, our double division. We have the crowds first that are divided, and then we have the Pharisees that we see by the end also divided. But let's start with the crowd and the crowds are divided. Verse 43 makes that clear. There was a division among the people over him. And there's, at least John gives us three stances of where their division at least comes from, what they're actually thinking of Jesus. The first one in verse 40, when they're proclaiming that he's the prophet. And the second one comes in 41, where they're proclaiming he is the Christ, he is the Messiah. But then 42 comes from the other side um, that says, no, 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 he can't be the Christ. This can't be how it works out. Look at where he comes from. 
His argument is actually a sad argument. Uh, Merrill Tinney, in his words, puts it better than I. He says, perhaps this is another illustration of John's irony. For Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the very passage that convinced his critics that he could not be the Messiah was one of the strongest to prove that he was. We'll run into irony again with the Pharisees towards the end. But here's the three stances. Some are proclaiming that he's, he is the prophet to come. They're recognizing Moses uh, and all that he provided for him and points ahead to another additional prophet. And they're saying this must be him. Those same Jews apparently then also, some of them don't see the prophet and the Messiah being one because they just think he's the prophet. But the other group thinks that they are together. They must be the same because they're saying, no, he's the Messiah. Yet while others are saying, no, 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 he can't be any of these things. So the division is summed up again. So there was a division among the people. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Now, John answers the question of who didn't lay hands on Jesus by going on to talk about these officers, these officers who apparently have been sent by the lead priests, the high priests, and by the Pharisees to go and arrest Jesus. So apparently during this whole conversation, they were present with instructions to arrest this man, but, they don't, but no one lays hands on him. And we get this told to us in verse 45. The officers then came back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And listen to their response. This is the one we read together. This is an amazing response. You know, it could have been said, they could have come back and actually said uh, something to just skirt around the issue, right? To not really make a proclamation about Jesus. They could have come back and they could have said, well, you didn't, you didn't realize how many people were gathered around him. We couldn't have just walked up and arrested him. You don't realize, like Pharisees, you don't realize that those people who were there, that great crowd, they were divided about who this person was. Some of them not only thought he was the prophet, some of them think he's the Messiah. How could we have walked up and arrested him? That would have incited a huge riot. A fight would have broken out. Rome probably would have gotten involved. We know how that turns out, right? They could have found an out in this, probably from a pragmatic stance, but they don't. Instead, they proclaim a great truth. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. This is the hinge of our passage this morning. It's this right declaration from these officers about Jesus that no one speaks like him. No one has ever had words like this. No one has ever spoken with the authority to bring about salvation now in the way that he does. Now, the crowd is not only divided, but the Pharisees are also divided. But before we get to the hint of the Pharisaical division with the Nicodemus at the end, um, we actually, John sets up another stage of irony here um, where the Pharisees actually make three diagnoses, um, where they go in and they first address the, the uh, officers, then they address the crowd, and then they'll address Nicodemus. And they, um, they kind of point to, obviously, what they think the problem really is. Um, this is irony because it builds up that it's actually not about them, but it's entirely descriptive of the Pharisees. Because the first thing that they say in verse 47 is they say that the guards are deceived. The Pharisees answered, talking to the officers, have you also been deceived? I mean, have you, have you gone and fallen to the lies of this crowd or of this man? Their first statement into the situation is pointing to those officers and saying, you guys, you clearly are deceived. You're not right in this. 
to help remind them of the truth of who they represent, of why it's wrong for them to be deceived. Uh, Verse 48, have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? They cite their authority. They say, well, your officers were sent from us, so your job was to carry out the truth we know, not for you to get deceived. Not only do they diagnose the guards as deceived, they also diagnose the crowds as cursed. Verse 49, but this crowd does not know the law and is accursed. Now it's interesting. This argument starts here, I think, taking an emotive tense. The Pharisees aren't necessarily presenting this as some state of, of logic here. Now they're going and attacking people who aren't even there to defend themselves. Because they're, they're so stuck to this idea of they're right and Jesus is wrong, the guards are deceived, that they're going to go so far as to say that the crowds are accursed because they don't know the law like we do. This was the Pharisaical motif of the day. Anything that they could do to bolster themselves up, to earn their own self-religion and reliance, and thus, in their minds, righteousness, so that they could stand in front of a holy God. And oftentimes, to accomplish that, like true bullies, they would push down anybody else so that they could prop themselves up. And here, that's what they're doing. They're saying that crowd, they're cursed. They don't know the law. Look at us. Clearly, we're right. So the guards are deceived, the crowds are cursed, and then they attack Nicodemus for his bias. We've we've run into Nicodemus before. We saw him back uh, in chapter three um, when he came to Jesus at night, recognizing him as a great teacher. And he walks away from that conversation being told uh, that he must be born again to receive salvation. And we talked then, if you can recall that far back, uh, we talked then Um, about how Nicodemus walked away from that situation, probably not believing. And we run into Nicodemus here, and we run into him again at the end. At the end, he at least does an act that demonstrates he has some kind of faith. Here, we don't know yet. Here, we're still left. Maybe it is. Maybe he believes. And maybe this is his subtle way um, of trying to communicate that Jesus really is the right one for saying the right things. Um, Or maybe it's just him being pragmatic at this point and saying, Hey, this may be another opportunity I get to hear from that great teacher. Last time I had to go sneak, with, sneak over there at night. Now I can just say, hey, what about our due process, guys? What about the normal way we do things? We normally get them in here so we can hear from them. Why don't we get this guy in and hear from them? He says something pretty logical, not seemingly on either side about who Jesus is. Yeah, that's not how the Pharisees take it. Pharisees aren't interested Verse 52, they reply, are you from Galilee too? Meant to be an an insult. Galilee was kind of more looked down upon as a region. Ironically, Nicodemus owned a lot of land in Galilee. So they say, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Again, a weird thing. Jonah and Nahum from Galilee, they're prophets. I don't think, this is why I think, this text is why I think the Pharisees are moving away from logic and reason and just responding in emotion. Because they're not even saying things that they even would know if they investigate, they really mean. Nicodemus, who brings up this point of, of, of due process rather innocently, then is thrown in with the lot of them. Well, you must be from Galilee too. You must be like these accursed crowds. You must be like these guards who are deceived. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. When knowledge won't be the response that sometimes wins them over, when clearly here the Pharisees have made up their mind. 
They're not interested in hearing from Jesus because they've already come up, um, come up in their own minds that that man isn't speaking truth. He's challenging what we believe. He's challenging the process we've set up so he can't be right. And they're not going to be convinced by anybody. And this is John's irony once again. The Pharisees call the guards deceived. The crowds accursed and Nicodemus biased. Yet that's a truer reflection of them, their own state. It is the Pharisees who are deceived. And they're biased. And unfortunately, that bias, holding to that bias will lead to them being cursed. But this is what Jesus does. Jesus divides. It is true that no one else can speak like him. And when he does speak, you know that it causes people to respond. You have to choose. You have to choose him. You have to choose not him. He is division in his words when he presents truth. This was true from the beginning at his birth when old man Simeon um, says in Luke 2, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Even from the beginning, the proclamation is made of Jesus that he will be a dividing factor. Some will rise, some will fall, and he will be opposed. Jesus states this about himself in Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have, not, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I'm going to present the truth of who I am so that all humanity comes to a place where they're going to have to decide. John is clearly asking his readers what will be their response to these words. This man who speaks like no other, how will you respond now, a couple of weeks ago, Chris uh, walked us through the famous C.S. Lewis argument about Lord, liar, lunatic, right? Pointing to the fact that, again, Lewis's claim was that Jesus, you really have no other choice but to choose something about him. And you either choose that he's a, a lying lunatic or that he is Messiah. Since we've already covered that from Lewis and hearing from Chris, um, I decided uh, this morning to bring that same um, reality back to you, but from, from a different Irish man, uh, this time Paul David Hewson otherwise known as Bono. I never knew his real name till now. Back in 2004, after a terrorist bombing in Madrid, Bono was being interviewed by this French journalist, a guy named Mishka Assayas, who cited, um, in talking about the uh, cause of the attack, he cites that religion is at fault. Bono takes that moment in this conversation, which is recorded in a book, um, and says, takes that moment to, um, uh, to point to Christianity and to begin to talk about grace, um, at one point, Bono states, uh, it is not our own good works that gets us through the gates of heaven. And in response to this, Assayas replies, such great hope is wonderful, even though it's close to lunacy. In my view, Christ has ranked among the world's great thinkers, but son of God, isn't that a bit far-fetched? Bono's reply, um, whether he's a reader of Lewis or he just came to his own conclusion uh, is remarkable because he's going to point to this great division here. Bono replies, no, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the, to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy. He had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, but they, Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius, but actually Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm the teacher. Don't call me teacher. 
I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please just be a prophet, a prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that, but don't mention the M-word because you know we're going to have to crucify you. But Jesus goes on, no, no, I, I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free, free from these creeps, but actually I am the Messiah. At this point, everybody starts uh, staring at their shoes and says, oh my God, he's going to keep saying this. What a great line. Oh my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. And these are the words of Bono. I don't know if Bono is a born-again believer. I pray that he is. But clearly, he's at least convinced of the same logic that convinced Lewis. You have to decide on Jesus and his words, who he really is. But alas, we're back to our question. Our question remains, how will we respond to Jesus' words this morning? What will you do with the man who speaks like no one has before? Let's go back to those words, and I want to draw two points um, Two points of application from them that I think are appropriate for us to consider. First thing that Jesus does in his statement that causes the division, that causes him uh, to get the claim that no one has spoken like this before, the first thing that he does is he offers salvation for the soul. Jesus offers soul salvation. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Everything you're doing about these rituals celebrating salvation, that is actually me. I'm the one who can save your soul. We are the thirsty ones. We are the ones who have had sin in our lives wreck us from a relationship with a pure God. We are the ones who are hopeless in that condition to ever put it right. We are the thirsty ones. And it is Jesus who says, even you, thirsty, separated, lacking, going to die, can come to me and drink, I will take care of that sin problem. Jesus offers salvation for the soul. And maybe that is, needs to be your response this morning. Maybe you realize that you are thirsty. You realize you still got this sin in your life, you've never asked Jesus to deal with it. Then today could be the day of salvation because Jesus wants to save your soul. But not only does Jesus offer soul salvation, Jesus also offers soul satisfaction. Whoever believes within them, water, living waters will well up. There's no need for anything else. You have the Holy Spirit, a source of living waters. You don't have to be thirsty anymore. That's not even an option to act like you're thirsty anymore. Because inside of you, you've been made complete. You have a well, a living river flowing inside of you. Everything you need, I've put in you. And maybe that is our response for some of you. Maybe you have thought, well, I have put my faith in Jesus. He has saved my soul, but I forget he's the only one who can satisfy it. Maybe as we move into a time of invitation, as Justin is going to make his way back up to lead us, this is what you need to consider. Is you need to consider what are the areas in my life that I'm still trying to satisfy my own soul. What is it about a bank account or a number or a relationship or a person that I'm trying to still accomplish this? 
when the great truth is, not only has Jesus saved my soul, the Holy Spirit dwells in me and completely satisfies me. I no longer have to seek those things as someone who is thirsty. But I have confidence of the identity that he has placed on me and that he is the source of that continued provision. In this time of invitation, we're going to invite you to stand and to sing. You can pray, you can kneel, you're welcome to come forward, or you can gather with some people at the right side of the room and pray with them. Maybe it is simply during this time you realize, you know what, I need a group of people like this, a church like this, to remind me how Jesus satisfies my soul and has saved me. And if you had the conversations about um, with our Welcome Home team or with Lance about church membership, you want to come make that known, this can be the time. But whatever it is and however you need to respond, I pray that during this, we can rightly recognize Jesus as one who can save our soul, as one who satisfies our soul. And as he has put forth that truth to divide us, I pray that we fall on the right side of the division and recognizing him as true and his gifts as able to do what he says they can. So may you respond to